Some people have dedicated their entire lives to a single topic. Anything from philosophy to sociology to the arts. Join us on Thinking Aloud as we condense the expertise of lifelong learners to a simple 30-minute dip into their perspective. You've never seen a thought pool this deep. Dive in with host Marcus Smith on Thinking Aloud. Wednesdays at 1.30 p.m. Eastern, 11 Mountain, here on Sirius XM 143. BYU Radio. Talk about good. Tonight, BYU TV brings you a world of songs and cities. First, Mason Jennings shares the peace and satisfaction he gets from the creative process on audio files. Then, King Candy must deal with the Candyland financial crisis on Studio C. After the duet, take a tour of the city that houses the largest film industry in the world, Mumbai, on Megacities. Hear the music of the city tonight on BYU TV. Did you leave BYU without a degree? I'm thankful for the Bachelor of General Studies program because as I chose the life that I wanted to live, being a full-time mom, staying at home, and raising my children, it just gave me hope that I could still finish my goal, but at the same time I could still be fulfilling my responsibilities as a wife and a mother while still being able to take university courses. Go online to bgs.byu.edu to see if you qualify to finish at home what you started at BYU, Bachelor of General Studies. Coming up on the Matt Townsend Show, have you ever been stuck in a situation with no way out? Well, that was never a problem for magician Harry Houdini, but he had a very special set of skills. Do you have those skills? Well, today we're going to talk about how to change yourself and escape and change your situation. All that and more coming up right after the news with Sam McCall. This is Sam McCall for Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Once again, Edward Snowden is revealing NSA data collection programs that will likely make people angry, this time trying to avoid extradition in Hong Kong. Snowden told the South China Morning Post U.S. officials have been hacking systems in Hong Kong and mainland China for years. In response to the growing criticism of broad surveillance, NSA Director General Keith Alexander is defending the programs, claiming the massive data collections have helped stop dozens of attacks on Americans. The man accused of kidnapping three men, women excuse me, for over a decade in Cleveland pled not guilty to the charges today. Prosecutors say they are considering the death penalty for Ariel Castro. New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg is pushing a new plan to help forward his gun control agenda. Bloomberg is asking prominent Democratic donors to withhold funds from four Democrat senators who voted against increasing background checks last year. No more federal aid will be given to victims of the West Texas fertilizer plant explosion. Federal Emergency Management Agency officials told Texas Governor Rick Perry earlier this week the state will have to foot the bill for additional infrastructure rebuilding. In world news, despite the fact the G8 summit doesn't actually begin until next week, 57 protesters have already been arrested in London ahead of the event. Police also raided the headquarters of a group called Stop G8. After a violent night of clashes between protesters and police in Taksim Square, Istanbul, the area is home to an eerie calm today. Normal traffic has resumed, with a large police presence remaining in the area. The oldest man ever verified to have lived died today in Japan at the age of 116. He was born the same year as Amelia Earhart and notably lived by the philosophy of eat light and live long. That's the news to the top of the hour. For BYU Radio, I'm Sam McCall.
welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm Kim Power Stilson, Stilson hosting uh, the host of the Talkworthy Radio Show, and I'm filling in for Matt while he's on vacation in San Diego, sunny San Diego, and beautiful but hot like it is here. We've got a great show for you today. Of course, we've got Merritt and Matt, Bryce and Aaron, the Matt Townsend Show team, and we're talking about escapes, great escapes, and we're talking about being stuck in situations that you might need to change. Now. We've got a great guest on, and she's an author, and she has an amazing story about her escape from Iraq. But before then, we're going to talk about some famous great escapes. Yeah, there are some really good ones as I was doing the research before the show. Um, For example, one is Henry. His name is Henry, but he was called Box Brown. And um, he was a slave who escaped, but he didn't – there were lots of slaves who escaped through the Underground Railroad and – that, but he did his escape completely on his own. And um, what happened was he had a carpenter build him a box and he put right side up on the outside of the box and then had friends mail it to the anti-slavery society in a different state. That's awesome. And that is how he escaped. That's how you take care of business. That's pretty right? awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. And we're talking about escapes now that where people are in situations where they can't I mean, they're in situations where people have put them in where they have to get out versus exactly. like and, Harry Houdini, we'll talk about later, and who wanted Box to Box Brown, he yeah. definitely was in a situation that was not his of his own volition. So he's Box Brown after the escape. Yeah, because, yeah, it said he spent um, 27 hours in the box. He had water and holes, but they it said this, despite the label, he ended up upside down for a really long amount of time, which would have been awful. <laughs> but I still, I just still feel really... The Anti-Slavery Society. That's classy. That's like, hey guys, pretty awesome. We have something Smart for dude. you. Yeah, here you go. And it does a little commentary on the state of the postal system back then because I surely have mailed things with right side up that have been, you know, been crumbled. Well, Nothing I've, has changed. I've <laughs> mailed things that can't say like, hey, put me right side up. And so they still ignored, you know, his, I'm going to assume his directions even if he can't communicate because all the stuff i order from amazon i can't say anything the ones that say fragile and then the box right. is falling apart that's my favorite you know my favorite my little sister my favorite uh memory and it was uh this box shows up at our door she's like mom it's fragile it's fragile <laughs> <laughs> so they're like it's fragile it's like all a uh, christmas story that yeah. sort of thing oh is that is that from christmas story that's in there yeah, yeah. oh I don't know. Maybe she. I don't. I didn't see. Is that with the guy that does this with his face? Uh, no, that's Home Alone. Okay, I don't Home know. Alone. <laughs> well, my my sister used to say it all the time. Fragile, fragile. We still tease her about it. Bugs Bunny <laughs> does it as well. Just so you know. Okay, so she's she learned it from Bugs or the Home Alone or the no. dad from Christmas Story. Is that who did it? Yeah. Yes. I think so. Oh, you're right. So yeah. like, hey, it says fragile. It's Italian. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it does? I don't remember that part. Okay. It's I'll, have to sh- I'll have to have her watch that. Don't That's worry. Really Christmas will be on all day. You can catch okay. it anytime. Okay? I, you know, a couple years ago it wasn't, and that was the saddest. We usually bake and watch that show, but it wasn't on, so we didn't bake. It was like our former protest. <laughs> that was really depressing. <laughs> At first I thought it was, well, we baked and we just didn't have, you know, no, so, no we just didn't bake. No, just, no, we, no baking. Well, it's like that. That makes it a catastrophe if you didn't bake. (laughs) Well, I I think, well, back to escape. I mean, when you're you're stuck, speaking of baking, you're stuck in a cell, usually get bread and water. And I always thought that was a reason enough to escape (laughs) because you'd be hungry. 
You know, like you'd want to have a variety. You'd want a little spice, a little jello, you know, whatever. <laughs> Some jello. Exactly. <laughs> Motives for escape. Jello. Number one. I'm on board for that. I mean, you would eat any, you'd want anything other than bread and water, oh, right? Yeah. Especially because the bread would probably be moldy and dry. Yeah. So and I don't think, you know, the dungeons of medieval England, right? I don't think they really took care of you, like made sure oh, you, like there were no, no prisoner rights, you know, that they had to come check on you. And I mean, you probably didn't even get to eat. You're upside down for years. No, no. There, it was interesting. I went to several prisons in castles in England, medieval castles. No, they didn't treat their prisoners well at all. If they even remembered them, there are several cases of prisoners who are like, oh, we forgot that we left you in this cell and we didn't feed you. And then, you know, there's interesting, you know, instruments of torture, horrible. They just didn't really have the respect for their prisoners. Once they were prisoners, they were hardly worth keeping care of. So it's it is very unsettling to go to, into some of the castles in England oh, and definitely. see these torture chambers and you'd want to escape. I mean, people dug for days, you know, or years and years and years, you'd see little scratches on the wall. They dig, they dig their nail and just do anything to escape. I mean, you'd have to be so crazy to do that, but you, you, mm-hmm. it's, it was way worse where they were than the, the torture that was caused by digging through a solid wall Yeah, with their nails. That's gross. Yeah. So Mary, Queen of Scots, Scotland, you've heard of her, right? Definitely. Big escape. I love, I love the story because this is in 1561, and she, she arrived in Scotland. She's from France, and then she was raised in exile, and she was supposed to be, you know, have her birthright and have all these wonderful things happen to her, and she gets um, imprisoned in this uh, Scottish castle. Now, if you've been to Scotland, which you guys, all, most of you have, right, it's cold. It's drafty. Have you been? Oh, no. That is not a place I have been. Yeah. I've not been across that ocean yet. I, I can't imagine. I'll get there I mean, someday. Yeah, you will. <laughs> uh, it's worth it. It's it's completely worth the trip. And so she um, she made friends. So she gets she gets out the first time. So she escapes twice. The first time she's foiled. I love that word. She gets out, and someone notices how nice her hands are and how beautifully kept um, her. You know, she mm. looked and what a pretty face. And I remember asking the guy in the Tower of London. I said, "Why is that? How?" How can this gal look so good still? I mean, she's been in prison for years, and she still has pretty hands and pretty face and nice clothes because he noticed the state of her clothing because they didn't treat all prisoners the same. Of course not. So royalty probably had the jello. <laughs> they are the ones who get the jello cups. It definitely. I went to um, the, the place that's called – sorry, wow um, – where Marie Antoinette was kept before her execution. Now, she had a pretty great – Pretty, 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 really great. She had food, these really nice quarters. But for her, that was still, I mean, from Versailles, you can't really go up from that. But yeah, they definitely got treated differently. So there's a difference between being a typical jewelry robber, you know, steal a loaf of bread from someone and being the wrong princess in the wrong era under the wrong, you know, hierarchy of who's next. Exactly. Yeah. Well, she actually did. I love this, too, because she actually. So the boatman took her back. She goes back in her cell. They don't know that she's gone. So she stays there. And then that was in March. In May of that same year, she befriends an orphan and he helps her escape. Um, She takes a boat across the mainland and then runs away on a horse. Like, you know, she just gets out <laughs> and then she's gone. <laughs> that's, that's I love that great. story. It's like, you know, nice quarters. You befriend an orphan. How bad could it be? <laughs> she had someone to talk to in the very least. That would be a difficult part about being alone if you didn't have anyone to talk to. Yeah. You know, you'd really want that would also be motive for escape, I think. Well, and in a way, I, I think back to the Count of Monte Cristo at the time that he was in the dungeons and their way of escaping. 13 years, right? 
13 years? It was more than that. I thought it was more than that. But I might be wrong. That's a good movie. He was in there for a while. It was a long time. But um, it's interesting because their way of escape, I mean, they worked on digging that little hole. But I think their primary way of escape was just through their mind. They worked on reading books, discussing philosophy, learning swordplay. Those things allowed them to escape mentally if they couldn't escape physically. Which is great to learn. If you're in a, a difficult situation, then then what do you do? Whether it's five minutes and difficult or five years or, you know, yeah. longer. Keeping your mind active is is probably the number one way people retain some kind of self-control, I bet. Mm-hmm. Okay, here's another escape out of the Tower of London. Okay. Are you gonna do you have one out of the Tower of London too? I, I do. Okay, so, so we both been to the Tower of London. We've yes. Creepy place. It, yeah, it's pretty terrifying. I mean you I, feel I would, it. I would not want to be on the wrong side of those walls. We'll just yeah. say that. It's a creepy place. It's right yeah. bare, right next to the Thames. And it is just like you know, moldy, damp. It's creepy. There's a feeling of creepiness that you can't get out. I, I, afterwards, I always have to go sit in the sun for a while before <laughs> going there. So you have some great escapes from there, right? I do. I don't know if it's what I would call a great escape. It oh. was um, Victoria opened the Tower of London as a museum during her reign, the end of her reign. But then they used it again as a military headquarters during World War One. And so the last escape that was ever made at the Tower of London was from a British soldier who was being imprisoned there. Because he had been writing phony checks. And so his little petty crime, they put him in the Tower of London. And apparently security there wasn't really great. I'm sure all of their men were overseas, so they probably right. probably a little underhanded. But he could have as many visitors as he wanted at any point of the day. And one day they left his cell unlocked. So he just found somebody's coat and walked out. Awesome. Completely walked out. <laughs> and then um, later... Uh, he went and had some fun in London. I'm sure it was pretty great. There's good music, everything. And then he t- tried to come back and to re-imprison himself because, as we were talking before the show, he probably had it pretty good for a soldier at that time. The other soldiers who were doing their duty fighting really didn't have it very great at all. So it's probably a pretty good deal to be imprisoned in the Tower of London. The mustard gas. Yeah, right. you wouldn't right. you wouldn't have to be in the trenches. That's a bonus. So he tried to go back and imprison himself, but they wouldn't take him. So, <laughs> so left the cell open. So on that purpose. was his escape. That was the last escape. Probably not as skillful and epic as we would have hoped, but epic. that was it. <laughs> it's less the prisoner doing something great, more the guards not doing <laughs> yeah. anything any good. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I like I like these stories. Eight hundred fifty years the Tower of London served as a prison for people. That's a long time. 850 years, that's many lifetimes, right? So obviously they're very intent on keeping. And not that many people escaped, right? So um, here's one I like. This is the Earl of Knightsdale. Who knows if I'm saying that right? 1715, he um, was uh, involved in the Jacobite Rebellion, which if you know anything about your history, that there was all a matter of opinion. And um, he, um, he was having visits. Like you said, he could have visits. And he had three women come and wait for him. So he, while the guards were gone, he put on the clothes of one of the other ladies. And walked out as one of the three ladies. And the lady who was left behind walked out afterwards in some clothes she'd, you know, had in a satchel. And so he went ahead and just walked out, got on a boat, and went off to Rome. That's that's a good plan. That's pretty Seems creative. Seems like it worked well. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought, you know, here's this. Again, though, the people that had the chance of escaping were the people that were, you know, a higher yeah. level. Yeah. or Somebody they were side. already privileged. Yeah. They needed to, to have degree. some resources. The people with the cuffs yeah. upside down that got spun around every couple hours. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't get out. 
So, I mean, that's those are escapes. Okay, so what about escapes? Um, some people put them, like Harry Houdini, put themselves in situations where it's it's his challenge to escape. You wouldn't think anyone would do that, but Harry Houdini was great at that. Yeah, he's the master escape artist. Um, his most popular trick, the one that he's most legendary for, is the Chinese water torture cell, which what would happen was he would come out and he would, first of all, as magicians do, describe what he was going to do to everyone in a very dramatic fashion. And then they would hang him upside down, chained, chain his feet, hang him upside down in this um, this tank of water. And they would have, um, they would fill it up. He would be locked in there. They would close everything. They put a drape over it, right? Yeah. And then they would cover it with drapes. And then somebody would stand by with an axe just in case something would go wrong so they could smash open the the case but every single time in about two minutes he would appear they would open the curtains again and he would be out soaking wet soaking wet yeah and he would be out of the tank and he performed that trick for the rest of his life it was his greatest one and the interesting thing about houdini was not that um his his tricks were you know his own legends his magician keeps his secrets but everyone else who was trying to recreate those tricks and it didn't turn out so well for a lot of them because he was the escape artist. He knew what he was doing. Yeah. And some people, he actually had a brother that was also an escape artist who tried to learn his secrets and almost died several times trying. So you probably knew that. I love during that time, Harry Houdini made magicians and escape tricks very popular. So I love, I love the stories about how when he, he went off, he was a European by descent anyway, but when he went off to, to, to um, perform in in Rome, and I love this story, all these escape artists popped up on the New York scene. And, you know, when you go to Europe, when you're that at that time is six months easy. Because the journey over is a month and journey yeah. back. So you don't just pop over and pop back. So all these, when he every time he come back from Europe, all of these escape artists. And so every one of them would challenge to see if they are better than the Harry Houdini. So his first couple months back was all spent going to these things, proving he was a better <laughs> magician. So that was a lot of work for him. No kidding. And he had security on his suitcase, and he kept it with his wife. Um, and no one really realized that because they thought he'd never do that. And I heard stories where he'd his wife would sleep with it chained to her arm oh, wow. sometimes while he was away, which I think I would have to have a really nice husband when he's home. Yeah, that's uh, commitment. There we are. <laughs> so that's that's an example of escaping from a situation that you know you put on yourself. So we have both kinds: you escape from something you don't like, and then you have the challenge of escaping from something you created. Yeah, well, and I think it's interesting. A lot of, I mean, most of us will probably never be in a situation like being imprisoned in a castle. I don't think that's something that's going to well, happen I mean, to me. You know, hold on. I mean, you never know with me. Um, we'll see what happens. We'll bring, you, we'll bring you jello pudding. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'll, make it, I'll be okay at that point. And some ladies' clothes. <laughs> so I can escape while cross-dressing. That's great plan. <laughs> great plan. Well, we're going to go to a break now. This is the Matt Townsend Show, and we'll be right back with more after this. Are you a little bored at work? That boredom might actually be good for you. This is Innovation Now, bringing you stories of revolutionary ideas, emerging technologies, and the people behind the concepts that shape the future. Another day at the office, another mindless task, and your lunch break can't come fast enough. But it's not all bad. British researchers report that in test subjects they studied, a little boredom led to increased creativity. 
In a presentation to the British Psychological Society, the researchers from the University of Central Lancashire found that truly boring tasks promoted a state of daydreaming in their test subjects. After those people daydreamed, their creativity was boosted for a while. Test subjects given the creativity test before the boredom-generating task were not as good at the creativity test. That could mean that one way to get your head ready for an office brainstorming session might be to get the day's mindless paperwork or repetitive manual tasks out of the way first. The testing found different levels of boring tasks, the ones that made daydreaming tougher, involved more writing than reading. The next phase of the tests could explore if this added creativity actually gets applied on the job. And we mean more than just using Comic Sans font on their next project status report. For Innovation Now, this is Buddy Rubino. Innovation Now is produced by the National Institute of Aerospace through collaboration with NASA and is distributed by WHRV. Visit us online at innovationnow.us. Traveling with Eric Dowdle is obviously about traveling, but it's also about painting, food, trivia, culture, friends, and history. So you could say it's pretty weird. Are people competing to be weird? Because I think we could probably give them a run. Is there? Can we put that on our thing? The you weirdest show, or the... the weirdest show on BYU Radio. Uh, I think we I would think be we right up there. One. Catch Traveling with Eric Dowdle weekdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. Here on Sirius XM 143, BYU Radio. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm Kim Power Stilson, filling in for Matt Townsend while he's away on vacation. Now, just before the break, we were talking about escaping, escaping from situations that you liked or created yourself and escaping from terrible, horrible castle-like prisons. And so Bryce has some thoughts about escapism that he's going to share with us now. Look, I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but I'm about to rant. This is the Bryce is Right. I recently entered a new phase of my life. Now, everyone has their own unwritten rules, but I've finally started writing mine down. You know, for reference. They're arranged in no particular order, at least for now, but rule number three is expect everything to be a trap. Always have a way out. Now, I know that sounds like I have a tinfoil hat on hand at all times, but it's less about any real danger or government conspiracy and more of a rule about preparation. Let me give you an example of what happens when I don't follow this rule. A friend of mine was having a get-together one evening. He was putting on a board game party, which is cool. It's not really my bag, so I was disinclined to attend. Well, as it happened, attendance was a little lower than what he wanted, and he was in the process of convincing me to show up when a stray thought hit my brain. My friend with the party was also friends with my very recent ex, who we'll refer to as Gertrude. So, just for my own reassurance, I asked my friend if Gertrude was going to be there. It had been a messy breakup that had happened very recently, so the wounds were still fresh and stinging. I figured it was a great idea to have some time away from each other. So I asked him, and after a noticeable pause, you know, the pause where you internally question your morals and ethics for just a little bit, then he said, no. So that was pretty suspicious, but I trust my friends, and I like to give them chances, so I started stacking the deck against him. I didn't want to drive all the way to his place, gas is expensive, and parking over there is a bear, so he'd have to come and pick me up, and I hadn't eaten yet, so there'd better be some food at this shindig, and he said he'd order some pizza, and this went on for a while, I didn't really want any of these things, I just wanted my attendance to become too costly for him so he'd give up on the invite. Well, he didn't, and I felt kind of bad for making him jump through so many flaming hoops, and I agreed to go. I demanded so much, at this point, how could I not come out ahead? 
So then he leaves his own party, picks just me up, we grab a few pizzas on the way back. Once we get to his place, I got to be the guy who brought pizzas, which was a nice little moment of glory. I take them into the kitchen to set them on the table, and I turn around to head for the cabinet with the plates, and who do I see in the kitchen chatting up some chick? Gertrude. I had one single thought rush through my head. She and I both realized how we found ourselves in this situation. I turned to my friend and said in my angry voice, Et tu, Brute? So I angrily grabbed two slices of pizza and I joined the group that was playing the game Sorry. It seemed somehow appropriate. Let's list the problems here. I was playing board games, which I don't really enjoy. I was in the same living space as my ex. I just spent 20 minutes feeling like I'd been a jerk to my friend, only to find out that he'd left a knife in my back the whole time. But most of all, I'd broken my own rule. I'd painted myself into a corner. It was too far to walk home, too late for public transportation, and I didn't have a car. I didn't know anyone there well enough to ask for a ride home mid-party. And the one person who could give me a ride was no longer trustworthy, and I had already asked too much of him. I had no escape. So while I was bitterly starting on pizza slices three and four, I had another stray thought hit my brain. There was no way I could leave until this party was over. And Gertrude wasn't the sort to leave just because things were uncomfortable. To her, that would have been like admitting defeat. And of course, she can't do that. So I was staring down the barrel of a long and awful evening, and there wasn't much I could do about it. Unless... And so began the formulation of my most evil plan. As the night went on, more people finally showed up. We had a few games going, and we had music playing. Music that was loud. I took out my phone. It was 1041. I quickly searched for the record of the city noise ordinance. You couldn't go above 85 decibels after 10 p.m., and trust me, we were above 85 decibels. So I decided to follow rule number 23, which states, If you're gonna go, go big. I decided to go for broke. I called the cops on the party that I was at. I made sure to grab pizza slices 5 and 6 and finish them before the police arrived to shut down the party and tell everyone to be quiet and go home. I understand how evil that was, but if the ends justify the means, 15 minutes later, I was in a car headed for home, so consider those means justified. Alright, I'm out. And remember, don't forget to be awesome. (laughs) I'm kind of a terrible friend. You called the cops on a party you were at. I mean, it had been going on for a few hours. So, you know, everyone had their fun. Did you ever tell that friend? No. Gertrude? Oh. I think she knows now. Well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I'm kind of speechless, which is awful when you're a talk radio show host. I'm sorry. I should have planned better. (laughs) (laughs) Expect everything to be a trap. And then if you don't have the trap, you're going to go big. So you're going to get out of it. I guess. if If you're in the trap and you can't get out. Yeah, if you, it's, it comes from like go big or go home. No, if you're going to go, go big. Like don't just know half measures. That's another way some people will say it. Like, nah, if you're going to do it, just go all out. So your friend picked you up, bought you pizza, and paid for a ticket? Uh, well, not not a parking slip, but definitely got pizzas in the name of the party, but mostly because I suggested it. But yeah, he was desperate enough for more people to attend um which it was he didn't need because people showed up eventually i think he was just he was you know right when the party started he was oh no no one's here i better start getting people to show up i was the wrong person to invite clearly i was the wrong person to invite i think we should try to get him locked in the tower of london because i think he could get out i would put on quite the show yeah <laughs> don't you think so merit matt I mean... oh i think something interesting would happen it probably Involves something hilarious, too. I mean, you're like 2013's MacGyver, is what you are. (laughs) 
But he used his smartphone, which was his tool of choice. Yeah. I mean, if they're going to post city ordinances online, I'm going to look it up, right? Okay, Aaron's going to say something. I just couldn't get Admiral Akbar out of my mind. (laughs) It's a trap. That was the best part. So... Do you find, I mean, elevators, parties, what what else do you find to, that you have to escape from in your life? Um, I don't, I really don't like, uh, it, really it's traps. So if someone sets up some sort of, uh, I didn't really inform you of what's going on and now I'm going to drag you into this, like uh, showing up to meetings at work where it actually doesn't have anything to do with me, that doesn't happen that often. But every now and then I'll be told, oh, this is, a, this is a meeting that you really need to you really need to attend. And it won't have anything to do with me. And other jobs I've had have been just awful about this. Like, well, this is a meeting that everyone needs to really be at. And okay, it's a meeting for everyone. That means they're going to talk about everyone. No, that is an assumption that I made on my own, which I should not have made in the first place. Well, I think it's interesting that you use your smartphone as a tool of choice. I, I see people doing that all the time. So we got to talk about that later in the show, how people use electronic devices to get out of conversations so that might be another one but some things that people will do is they'll they'll tell someone else to hey send me a message or call me real fast so i can get out of this i've seen that used a few times as well yep or on a date could call me at ten thirty, and i can go home if the, the dog got run over oh knock on wood that's not funny <laughs> all right so escape situations that we're talking about on the matt townsend show today we're going to have the news with sam mccall and then we'll be back with more Having knowledge about medical advice is never a bad thing. It'll be a one-of-a-kind opportunity for you to achieve mega health. Ron Hager joins us every Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern to share insider info and commentary from the world of health and wellness. It's common sense, it's prudence, it's doing things that are moderate, that are balanced, that have variety, not just with the things you eat, but the way you exercise and other things that you might be doing. Tuesdays on The Morning Show, only on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. This is Sam McCall for Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. NSA leaker Edward Snowden now says the agency has been hacking computer systems in Hong Kong and mainland China. The reveal comes as Snowden continues to work for officials in Hong Kong to grant him political asylum. In response to the growing criticism of broad surveillance, NSA Director General Keith Alexander is defending the programs, claiming the massive data collections have helped stop dozens of attacks on Americans. The man accused of kidnapping three women for over over a decade in Cleveland pled not guilty to the charges today. Ariel Castro is facing nearly 330 separate charges, and prosecutors say they may seek the death penalty. New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg has a new plan to help forward his gun control agenda. Bloomberg is now asking prominent Democrat donors to withhold their funds from four Democratic senators who voted against increased background checks last year. Thousands of people have been forced to evacuate in Colorado as wildfires advance towards residential areas. 900 inmates were also transported overnight from an area prison. In world news, despite the fact the G8 summit doesn't actually begin until next week, 57 protesters have already been arrested in London ahead of the event. Police have also raided the headquarters of a group called Stop G8. After a violent night of clashes between protesters and police in Taksim Square in Istanbul, the area is now home to an eerie calm today. Normal traffic has resumed while a large police presence remains in the area.
And the oldest man ever verified to have lived died today in Japan at the age of 116. He was born the same year as Amelia Earhart and notably lived by the philosophy of eat light and live long. That's the news to half past the hour. For BYU Radio, I'm Sam McCall. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm Kim Power Stilson from the Talk Worthy Radio Show, filling in for Matt while he's on vacation in San Diego. Hope he's having a great time. I know I've enjoyed working with his team, and today we're talking about, you know, escape. Escape from situations you create for yourself, uh, like Bryce ranted about, and also escape from situations which you had no control over. And today we have a great guest who is the author of a new book, which is called If I Live to Tell. Our guest is Akila Hader-Green. She's from Atlanta, Georgia. She's now a personal trainer, a nutritionist, and a massage therapist. And she has a story to tell with her new book, uh, again, If I Live to Tell. It's an autobiography um, account of her struggle from childhood against abuse, betrayal, and tragedy. And from what I understand, she's going to tell us a little bit about the story that's in her book. But the part that we uh, were interested in talking about today especially was being abandoned by her parents and then... And ending up in an unwanted arranged marriage in Iraq. And it's a powerful story. I hope you'll stay tuned while we introduce Akila Hader Green. Are you here? Okay, so we're not, we don't have her quite on yet, but I also wanted to mention that. Um, the story she tells of triumph is one that hopefully will help inspire us. I mean, sometimes we take our lives for granted. We say, hey, we were just in a tough job or a, a tough relationship, and we want to escape. Like Bryce, he was in a, in a tough party, you know, eating pizza. That's a tough life. But people actually have situations that they're in that they really need help uh, and they need to escape from. And those people that face their their uncomfortable situation and with courage and strength and manage to escape are, are, are the focus for us today. So... We're going to talk to her in a minute. All right. So you know what else? I, I wanted to. I was in a situation that was was pretty scary once. I was in New York, and I was walking down through a crosswalk, and I heard this big crack over my head. And I look up, and I see this big sheet of like it looks like cardboard kind of wafting down on me. And I and I realize all of a sudden that it's dangerous, and it's coming down right on my head. And so all of a sudden, I hear somebody something yell, "Run!" And so I shout, "Run!" And this entire crosswalk of people go, you know, cross town Manhattan towards uh, the station, and we're running for our lives. And all I could think as I am just running is, "Am I ever going to see my kids? Am I ever going to get out of here?" And I just kept running. And of course. Of course, the story, you know, we, a big, huge sheet of glass had come down from a building and, and we had been, ended up falling right in that spot we had just been and we escaped. So that's the closest or the most, the most I've ever been uh, close to fear like that, fear for your life. And that's something that Akila Hader-Green is very familiar with. Akila, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? Thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your book, If I Live to Tell. Thank you for having me. So, Akila, you did you just finish this book? Um, it was finished uh, in February. Okay, so how long did it take you to write it? Um, it was basically, uh, it was a long project. It was over a couple of years um, to put it all together, but um, it only took a few months, really, to, you know, put it all down into the book. So, but it was a long, it was a long project in the making. Uh, a couple of years, basically. And and was it difficult, a difficult book for you to write? 
It was. Um, a lot of the things that I shared in my book, I never, ever shared with anyone. Um, they were between me and God and God only. And, yeah, it was. It was difficult to actually, you know, come out of the closet and speak about those things. You know, I hear from other authors we've had on on my show, and, I, and I'm sure the show as well, that sometimes when you write it and release it, it you feel lighter. Was that the case for you? Yeah, I tell people all the time, um, and I wrote um, that in the uh, beginning of my book, that it was the cheapest therapy in the world um, because I managed to get rid of all these things that I'd held inside for so long and just get them all out. Um, it's like poison, you know? Yeah, and you now you live in Atlanta, is that right? I do. Okay. And you grew up in England, is that right? I did. I grew up in Manchester, England. Oh, I know Manchester well. My family's in Warwickshire. Oh, okay. It's not very far. Oh, good. Yeah, I know. It's so fun. I love your accent because it sounds more like home than other British accents, too. But you have you have a little Georgia with you now. I know. I'm getting southern. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, uh, uh, most people are used to London accents and, you know, being from the north, um, it throws people off a little bit. Yeah, and it's a, it's definitely a unique accent, and the, I, I mostly those from there recognize it. I think, anyway. Yeah, all my mates from Manchester will know who I am. Yeah, yes. <laughs> well, I and I'm a I'm a UK citizen as well, and so I thought I'd throw that in for fun. I don't have any accent. Maybe maybe a Utah one. I don't know. Um, but I, I was really interested. I, I actually suggested you to be on the show because I thought it was, it's always fascinating to me when people are in situations that, that other people put them in and when they find the courage to, to, to escape those situations and then also write about them and share them. Like you said, it's something that you had between you and God and now, now the world knows. Yeah, you know, it, there was two reasons, like I said, like I also put in there that, you know, one was selfish that I just, I needed to get it all out. I needed to just let it go and move forward from it. And, you know, you tell yourself you have, but there's little things that trigger, you know, certain things that you need to just get out of, of your mind, out of your heart, out of your daily life. Um, but also on a selfless part, I wanted to turn everything that I've been through, um, from a tragedy or, you know, a heartache into something good for someone, you know, maybe hopefully lift somebody up or inspire somebody or, you know, when someone's alone and going through something really terrible, you know, maybe they can see that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. You can get through something and be normal and live a normal life. Right. And if you hadn't have done this, written it down to share that triumph, a story of, you know, intense, uh, intense courage and triumph, then you will have, it's just between you and God. And then this way you get to share. It's not as a wasted period of your time. It's more of a period of where now you get to turn it into something wonderful. Exactly. You know, it would have just stayed senseless tragedies that, you know, maybe I learned something from, maybe not, but, you know, it does. It turns everything terrible into something good. So basically that was my intention for it. Well, and I appreciate you being on. Now, do you tell us a little bit about your life before we you tell us the story that will uh, invite us to pick up your book and and read it uh, more thoroughly? We only have a little, you know, this short time on the show, but um, plenty of time now. What what are you doing in Atlanta now? I am a personal trainer and a nutritionist and relaxation therapist. Perfect. And do you have a family? 
I do, but all my family live in England, so um, I have just myself and my two children, Max and Lily. Oh, I love you. Have great; those are great names. So, all right, let's go back to your book. Then you've you've. Um, do you want to start by telling us maybe either what inspired you to write it or a little bit about the story? I know that we were talking about escape today, and I know that you you started out uh, in and you were born in England, and we're interested in what happened from there. Yeah, um, I was born in Manchester, England. Um, My father is Iraqi by birth, and my mother is British. Um, I, growing up, basically grew up as, you know, just a normal European British girl. My father really didn't talk much about his, you know, his heritage or his family or his culture or anything. We knew little things, but not much. Um, during my mother and father's divorce, um, I went to go live with my father and, um, he had suggested when I started to kind of probe into what, you know, my background a little bit, he had suggested me to go maybe visit. Um, so being young and naive, I had no clue. Um, I was about 14 at the time, um, really about the history and what was going on there, um, during that time. And that's in Iraq, right? Absolutely, yes. Okay, and what part um, of Iraq do you mind sharing? The most southern, Basra. Okay. Um, I was supposed to go for two weeks as sort of like a vacation trip, um, just to meet the family, find a little bit of, about my, you know, culture, background. And um, unfortunately, I ended up being there for just a little over two years. Okay, so you thought you're 14, and did your mom know you were going? No, he had told my mother, because my mother was very well aware of some things, and she'd always told us growing up, um, you know, don't ever go, don't ever go. But at this point, I left my mother's very bitter being a teen girl, you know, fighting with your mom, the, the normal stuff. Um, I didn't believe her. And I was always very, very, very close to my father. I was some, somewhat of a daddy's girl. So everything my dad said was gold to me. Um, so I believed him. And uh, so I I went that he had told her I'd gone on some school trip and that I'd be back in a couple of weeks. Wow. So tell us what it was like to go from England to Iraq, first impressions. Um, like entering the Twilight Zone, maybe? <laughs> it, it, wow. It, it, was defini- it was definitely something else. It was nothing like I was ever used to. Um, I was, you know, 14, so I still had this, you know, big imagination. and All my expectations were completely not what I thought, you know. Um, my father had painted a picture of, you know, um, shakes and palaces and, you know, um, just, you know, Arabian Night's Dream, and and when I got there, it was it was nothing short of like third world. Um, I've never seen anything like it, and I don't think I ever will again. Oh. And was the did you did you when you arrived and landed? Did you immediately go meet the family, your father's family? Well, at the time, Saddam Hussein was in reign, so I. Um, it, there was a lot of uh, security and a lot of. Um, soldiers, things like that. I had to fly. You can, Iraq was still a no-fly zone. So I had to fly into Jordan and be picked up from Jordan and take, I think it was like a 14-hour car trip from Jordan to Baghdad and then from Baghdad to Basra. And the countryside, I mean, what were the traveling conditions like? Do you remember? 
Oh, yes. Um, I documented them in, in If I Live to Tell in my book. And um, every, there's like checkpoints, um, soldiers, police, um, you know, being from England, I'd never seen a gun before. <laughs> I've seen the hugest guns I've ever seen in my life. Um, it was just nothing but desert and sand and dirt and heat. That's all I remember. But I wasn't allowed to look up at most points. I was supposed to look down at the ground. Um, so a lot of the times it was like, it was almost excruciating because, you know, I'm curious. I want to see what's going on. I didn't understand, like, why it was so, you know, taboo for me to look or, you know, things like that. Wow. And so you're 14, and are you with your, your father um, as you're going through these checkpoints? No, my father sent me alone from London to Jordan um, with him leaving Iraq at a young age. Um, he wasn't allowed to return because if he returned, he'd be a traitor. He'd be beheaded. Um, so my father wasn't allowed to go. Jordan would have been fine. I don't understand why he didn't come to Jordan with me, but he didn't. My grandfather um, met me in Jordan and made the trip to Iraq with me. And you had never met this man who is your grandfather before? I had met my grandfather um, on an, uh, an occasion before he had come to England years before when I was a small child. Um, and I vaguely remembered him, but not too well. But yeah, he was one of the family members that I'd met. So um, I kind of, you know, knew him, but not really. Mm. Now, I know we need to read your book, If I Live to Tell, um, to, for more of the details, but I'd like to, if you could, um, before we go to break, we have a couple more minutes, share, you know, your first impressions of the, your family and, you know, did you see any similarities? Um, because, of course, you know, like your father and that you recognized in yourself. Um, the only similarities I uh, could see was... Um, I have very deep green eyes, and uh, a lot of the family members, plus my father, is where I got them from. Um, I, I recognize that uh, my brother is one of seven, I think seven, or yeah, something like that. But he um, was, there was a couple of the brothers that looked like my father, um, one in particular, the youngest. I saw my father instantly in him. Um, things like that, you know, the, the first things you notice instantly. A cousin of mine that was the dead ringer for my little sister. Um, just a lot of things that were like, you know, I knew it was family when I got there. So at what point, I mean, did were they welcoming? Were they wonderful? Um, they're very different people, um, you know, um, not what I was used to. Um, I would say for the most part, um, by their standards, they were, you know, welcoming. and um, It was very overwhelming for me. Um, they have like a, uh, a call they do when they celebrate and it's like really loud and it freaks me out. <laughs> like, a, like a hoot or a, like a... Yeah, and they were all out in the streets doing that, which is supposed to be welcoming. But, you know, to a 14-year-old little girl that was, like, completely stripped and told what to wear, covered up from head to toe, didn't know what was going on, couldn't speak, couldn't understand anything. It was like, like I said, going into the Twilight Zone. It was definitely something else. 
Wow. Akila Hader-Green is with us on the Matt Townsend Show, and we're talking about her book, If I Live to Tell. So far, she's left, left England by herself, met her grandfather in Jordan, and she's going to share that story with you listeners after this brief break. We'll be right back. Self-healing materials of the future could mimic the human blood clotting process. This is Innovation Now, bringing you stories of revolutionary ideas, emerging technologies, and the people behind the concepts that shape the future. One of the growing areas of interest in material science is in self-healing materials, materials that repair themselves automatically when damaged. This is not new. Self-sealing gas tanks and tires are the grandfathers of this idea. But we can go farther now with electronic circuits which carry capsules of conductive fluid that could heal broken connections or paint finishes on cars that fill in their own scratches. While studying the processes of nature and self-healing materials, MIT learned how blood clots form and then disappear. Your blood contains clot-forming materials all the time, and scientists thought that, like a cement mixer or slush drink machine, it was fast motion that kept clots from forming. But it turns out that's exactly backwards. A special long-chain molecule in blood plasma acts like a rolled-up piece of adhesive tape in slow flow. When an injury makes blood flow fast, this sticky roll unwinds and starts tangling up platelets to form the clot. NASA is interested in learning more about research such as this for things like spacesuits that can heal after a puncture from a sharp rock or meteoroid hit. For Innovation Now, this is Buddy Rubino. Innovation Now is produced by the National Institute of Aerospace through collaboration with NASA and is distributed by WHRV. Visit us online at innovationnow.us. Add BYU Radio's toll-free number to your phone contacts and be ready to chat with us anytime. Our number is 855-CHAT-BYU. Whether you add your opinion to the morning show or ask Matt Townsend a question, we want to hear what you have to say. Again, our number is 855-CHAT-BYU. That's 855-242-8298. Call us. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your host, Kim Power Stilson, filling in for Matt Townsend. I'm the host of the Talk Worthy Radio Show, and so that's where you usually find me on the BYU radio dial. Not really a dial anymore, but um, for, for old sake radio, we'll say that. We're talking about escapism, and the Matt Townsend team and I have been talking about different situations in which you find yourself in need of escape. Now we have with us Akila Hader-Green, who is the author of the new book, If I Live to Tell, and she's been sharing her story from her childhood of betrayal and abandonment and as well as her escape from um, Iraq. And we we actually were at the break. We have Akila, 14 years old, with uh, her family, which she's never, most which she's never met before in, in a new country, in a new place on a two-week holiday. Now, um, Akila, what, what happened from there? Um, I, when we, when I was there, I came to realize that, um, I couldn't speak to my father. There was no way of getting phone calls out or in. All the lines were cut. Um, like I said, Sudan was in rain, so it was not like I could just pick up the phone and call my dad or my mom or anything like that. Um, and it was several, it, it was a while before I finally heard from my father. Um, and... It was almost like, at that point, I was like, okay, Dad, I've been here long enough. Um, 
you know, this is longer than two weeks. When am I coming home? You know, I was starting to get confused. And it was almost like he kept avoiding the subject. And being, you know, as a child, I was always taught, you know, do as you're told. And my dad was like God. So I um, just did everything he wanted me to do. I never really questioned him much. So I just didn't know what to do. Um, And it started to become apparent after a while that, I wasn't going home anytime soon. And you couldn't, um, you couldn't during, speak the language at all? No, um, it took me a while. Um, I started eventually to pick up um, understanding what was being said, um, but couldn't really talk back. And then after a while, I started to pick up talking um, back. And then eventually, yes, I could understand uh, most of what was being said, if not all, most of the time. And then I started to be able to speak back, first broken and then quite, you know, good. So, I mean, when you're around it 24-7 and that's all you hear and speak, it's like a child, you know, when you when you teach them a, a second language, if that's what you speak at home, that's what they learn. So eventually I did learn it, but it took me a good, probably about a year. Wow, that's actually pretty fast. So were you, I mean, at what point did you realize, how many weeks in did you realize, wow, this is not a two-week vacation trip. I'm not going back to, to London at all or England at all. Um, without giving away too much of my book, while I was there, I was um, I was sexually abused um, in the Middle East. If you're not a virgin or known to be not a virgin, um, you're actually supposed to be killed. It is a um, it's a law basically, and uh, a, a male member of your family on your father's side or your father is to take you out in the street for honor's sake of the family, save the family's honor, and uh, shoot you in the head. Um, and everybody cheers and praises that they save the honor of their family and they can continue on doing business and be respected in the uh, in the I guess you know world they live in. Um, it doesn't matter how it happened or, or, or how it came about. It just, it just is. Um, it's an honor killing. So to spare me from an honor killing, see, the, the reason why they didn't just go out and shoot me is my father takes care of so many families over there financially. Um, he provides a lot for them. And so, you know, they have to live during a time that it was blockades and you can't get things unless you can, you know, black market goods, they didn't want to lose that income. You know, I was basically their bank account. So they decided to um, re-virginize me and uh, sell me into an arranged marriage instead. Wow, and I don't want you to give away your book because that's a book that I want to read myself. Um, but how, I mean, didn't your father know this when he sent you over or was he just a, I mean, can you, can you talk about that all without giving it away? I think, you know, I think what, it, the, I look at it from two ways. Um, I think my father still has, because he left the Middle East when he was in his teens, you know, I think he was like 17 or something. Um, I think he still has the image of how it was when he was younger and when he was a child. And, you know, I don't think he seem, seems to realize that through all the wars and famine and everything that it's it's gotten very savagery over there. And, you know, things are a lot different than how they used to be. Um, so I don't think he realizes just what it's like. And I don't think he also realizes that he is more 
more of a British man by nature um, than he likes to admit. Um, from what I've seen in comparison to my father in England, I thought he was, you know, this exotic, you know, Middle Eastern Arabic man. But in comparison to where he's come from and seeing where he's come from, he's he's not. You know, he's nothing like um, how he wants to believe where he comes from still is. Wow. It's not the same anymore. So before you tell us about the arranged marriage... Um, and we and three minutes for break, and we'll bring you back to talk about that. What tell us? Describe what the the conditions you were in, like maybe, and if that's not too much from your book, but you know what what people wore, what kind of food you ate, maybe like um, what were the houses where where you stayed, what your room was like. Um, um, as for food, I didn't eat for uh, almost a year. Um, I, I really couldn't. The overwhelming distress and the things that I went through, like I discussed earlier, um, I've gotten to the point to where I, I just wanted to die. Um, I didn't want to live anymore. I lost the will to live. I just basically took it today as it came. And, you know, in several attempts in trying to take my life, um, I finally just even felt hopeless at doing that. Um, so I didn't eat. Uh, the food was um, very scarce. Um, like I said, there was a blockade. Um, they got rations every month of like rice, things like that. Um, a lot of the families were very, very poor. So, you know, and you've got large, large families that all live together under one roof. So even if they did have food, it was shared between like 15, 20 people. Um, so yeah, there, there was really not much to eat. And to be honest, I didn't really want to eat. I lost so much weight while I was there. I looked almost skeletal, like, by the time I came home. Um, the houses are uh, very cold, stony, uh, brick-type with mud, um, very dirty, dusty. Um, it's just almost like, you know, I said in my book, you know, it's like dirt had a leaf on everything. It was just on everything. Um, the people, you know, were, um, I'm trying to say it nicely because I, you know, but they're, they're very savagery by nature. Um, and that's just an opinion. It's not an accusation. Um, they're just, you know, in a country where it's every man for himself and, you know, you, you, you gotta do what you gotta do to make it. And it was, it was very chaotic mayhem, very, very violent uh, atmosphere. Akila, this is Akila Hader Green, and she's talking about her book, uh, If I Live to Tell. Actually, she's talking about her experiences um, that uh, caused her to write a book um, about her survival through this abuse, betrayal, tragedy, her being sent from England on a, a, a fun vacation trip, actually ending up in Iraq and not being able to get home for over two years. Um, Akila, when we get back, I want to talk a little bit about your arranged marriage and then whatever you would like to share with us um, about you know how you got back home. That doesn't ruin your book because everyone listening, I'm sure, wants to read it. So we'll be back with Akila after this. We're listening, you're listening to The Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio. Want more from BYU Radio? Then like us on Facebook for updates, behind-the-scenes information, and more. And once you're there, let us know what you think. Give us feedback on shows, ask questions, 
and connect with our BYU Radio listeners and with our show hosts. Just find BYU Radio on Facebook, like us, and talk about good. And as always, thank you for listening to BYU Radio. I think that we need to draw these connections every single day. Get your day started off on the right foot. The Morning Show with Marcus Smith. Weekdays on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Talk about good. It's time to talk. And Kim Power Stilson knows just what to talk about. 10 mind, body, spirit steps to fight fatigue and feel your best. Or maybe what it's like to be a um, demolition derby driver. You could even learn what is it really like in prison and how do you survive. Kim seeks out only the most interesting people to chat with. So join us Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern for her show, Talk Worthy, right here on Sirius XM 143, BYU Radio. KBYU FM, HD2 Provo. This is Sam McCall for Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Deputy Director of the CIA Michael Morrill announced today he will be stepping down from the position after 33 years in the agency. He played a major role in the success of the 2011 mission to kill Osama bin Laden. NSA leaker Edward Snowden now says the agency has been hacking computer systems in Hong Kong and mainland China for years. The reveal comes as Snowden continues to work with, with officials in Hong Kong to grant him political asylum. Accused of kidnapping three Cleveland women for over a decade, Ariel Castro pled not guilty to nearly 330 charges today. Prosecutors say they are considering pushing for the death penalty. The biggest tax cut in Iowa state history was signed into law today by Governor Terry Branstad. The plan is expected to boost economic growth by taking $4 billion off the property tax burden over the next decade. Thousands of people have been forced to evacuate in Colorado as wildfires advance toward residential areas. 900 inmates were also transported overnight from an area prison. In World News, Secretary of State John Kerry says the U.S. is debating what more could be done to assist the Syrian rebels in their fight against the regime government. He did not go into any specifics about what options are being weighed. Despite the fact that the G8 summit doesn't actually begin until next week, 57 protesters have already been arrested in London ahead of the event. Police have also raided the headquarters of a group called Stop G8. Clashes between protesters and riot police last night in Istanbul ended with the demonstrators being cleared out of Taksim Square today. The area is now eerily calm as a large police presence remains. That's the news to the top of the hour. For BYU Radio, I'm Sam McCall. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your host, Kim Power Stilson. Well, Matt is out of town in San Diego, and I'm working with the Matt Townsend team. And we have uh, with us in this block a great guest who's been talking about her book, If I Live to Tell. And it's an autobiography about her her betrayal and tragedy, her father sending her off on a holiday to Iraq, and her not getting home for two years. Now, Akila, I don't want to give away the book. Like I said, you, you and where can we get it, by the way? Because I'm sure people are saying, okay, tell us where we can get the book. Okay, they can get it at um, if I live to tell dot com or patriotdepot.com, dot com, and I am aware that it's available on Amazon as well as uh, I think Barnes and Noble has it on ebook. 
Okay, so it's e- you can get it, and again, that's Aquila A K E E L A Hader H A Y D E R Green without the E. I was surprised you didn't have the traditional E on the end of green. <laughs> no, it's just like the color. Okay, just like the color. So we were everyone's really enthralled with your story. We're we're seeing that you're 14. You're in different clothing. You can't. There's no phone. There's no food. Dirt on everything. And uh, you mentioned having to. Rather than be shot, you had to all of a sudden were put into an arranged marriage. Were you understanding the language at this time, or was it a complete surprise to you to have all of a sudden a new husband? Um, I yeah yeah. At this time, I could speak the language, um, even though it was still a complete surprise at the fact that I just barely turned sixteen and was getting married. And tell us, I mean, arranged marriage, that's something that is storybooks, right? People hear about it. They say how awful. But I don't know anyone until now you that's had an arranged marriage. Tell us the story about that. Um, It was basically, it was set up to where um, the family, uh, so many suitors come. Um, It's put out that you're up for marriage, basically. And so many suitors come to uh, marry you. Um, they're usually, they're usually family members, to be honest. It's usually like cousins and things like that. Um, I found out, um, that was the intention. Originally, I was to go and marry a cousin of mine. And your dad Um, knew, or? Yes. uh, My father wanted my cousin to, uh, come back with me and, uh, basically be a son to him. Um, he t- kind of wanted to kill two birds with one stone. My my cousin, who he wanted to marry me to, was uh, his father was killed in the Iraq Iran War, so he was trying to kind of do something for his, you know, late brother. And um, also, my father had always wanted a son and never had one. Hey, I guess I served the purpose. <laughs> Oh, Keila, I'm so sorry. I don't. If you don't want to talk about this, we completely understand. No, it's absolutely fine. I, I have no problem talking about it at all. Um, it actually does me good to talk about it. I used to, con- you know, when my book first came out. It was tough to do interviews, but it's not anymore. It's it's actually good. I I really I really do enjoy it because since I've put my book out, I've had so many people that have, you know, said it's touched their lives and it's helped them, you know, realize things in their life and it's been inspirational. So it's doing what I want it to do. So keep talking. Okay. And we won't, we'll let people read the book to hear more because I think it's bad enough that your dad sent you out for a a holiday. You ended up uh, being an arranged marriage that he knew about that. I'm, I'm pretty mad at your dad and I don't even know him. So, um, it's a, so forgiveness we, is a big thing. Forgiveness is a big thing. Okay. Well, so will we get to read about that in your book, possibly? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Well, let me ask you then, um, you know, how did you survive that situation? Obviously, you're, you're, you're in a situation you can't escape from on your own. How did you muster enough courage to get through that? Um, honestly, I really didn't at that point muster the courage. I basically had to get smart. I had to, uh, basically kind of weasel my way into more towards a guy that I knew was very poor and wanted to get to England and wanted to get out of Iraq. So I kept favoring a specific man, 
um, just because I knew he wanted to go to England. He wanted to get out of Iraq. He wanted to help support and provide for his family. So I got lucky in the fact that it was agreed upon on a, on on one certain man um, who did want to go. And then he, basically I left it to him to convince my father to bring us home. And was it the man you, you your father had chosen? Or do we have to read the book to find out? No, it wasn't. Okay. But yes, you have to read the book. But no, it wasn't. Um, it wasn't a family member. It was an outside member. And so, did you ever feel like you may not reach your goal? Did it ever seem like you got close and and then you, you failed and you had to keep trying? Um, to be honest with you, like I said, I'd given up hope on anything. Um, hope just wasn't something I could afford. Um, it was just basically surviving every day. And at that point, I didn't even want to survive every day. I just wanted to die. That's all I could think about was a way to die. And feeling even helpless and being unsuccessful in that, I'd just given up. I just floated and took the days as they came. And, you know, eventually, by the grace of God, um, this man managed to convince my father to bring us home. Only then did I start to feel a little hope creep back in of getting home and back to civilization and something I was familiar with. And what was your mom doing this entire time? Had you even spoken to her at this point, to this point? I'd spoken to her um, when when she eventually found out. I'd spoken to her once while I was there that I was heavily watched. Um, I had somebody breathing down my neck and a couple of other people basically standing right there, so I couldn't say anything. Um, and I was hoping that she would hear in my voice that I wasn't, that I was lying, that I wasn't okay, and that I wasn't, you know, wanting to stay there because I had to say I wanted to stay and I was fine. And, um, you know, my, my, my mother did not hear it in my voice. She was very resentful and angry towards me that I left. Um, basically her and done what my what she had told me not to do and basically sided with my father. There was a long going feud between her and my dad for years. It was like a chess game and us kids were like the pawn. So um it, it was almost like she had just basically called for ammunition for my father and didn't get it so she was angry. So she didn't know that you were you were just hoping she'd throw out a lifeline I was kind of hoping that she would hear in my voice being her child that something was terribly wrong. But she didn't. And after that point, I never heard from her again. Oh, no. You know, and I have teenage daughters, so I kind of get that. You know, you you get to this point where you're not getting along, so you kind of do shut down. But this is where you needed your mom to be fully aware for you, I bet. Well, my mother was my mother. See, this is why I went to live with my father in the first place. My mother was very abusive towards me as a child. Um, I had a very less than idyllic childhood. Um, she was very abusive. Um, she was very, very jealous of the relationship I had with my father because she had a very jealous love for my father, almost to the point of um, craziness. Um, so she's very neurotic, let's say. And so I was basically always a tool for her to hurt my father with. Um, so to her, it wasn't really about me. It was about her. So I was basically alone, you know. I felt like even if I would have been able to tell her, she probably wouldn't have done anything anyway. Did you make 
friends there? I mean, I guess that seems like a pointless question to ask, but was there any kind of warmth or ray of sunshine from any of your maybe cousins or mother figures over there? Um, no, not really. Um, I had uh, I, I, I had uh, one lady that was um, very nurturing towards me, and that was the widow of my late uncle um, that I told you had died. She she was uh, very mistreated. Being a widow, you're not allowed to remarry, things like that. So she was in a really bad situation. She was basically a slave, and um, she. You know, she was she was very mothering and nurturing towards me, and um, basically there, you know. To but she couldn't really. It was in the beginning. Um, I'd gone to live with someone else after that point. They moved me after I got uh, abused. Um, I had moved over to my aunt's house where it was dominantly women. Um, the original house that I went to stay in my grandfather's house was uh, dominantly men. Um, and that's where she was. After that, I really didn't get to see her that much. But when I first got there, she was very mother, mother, motherly oh, towards me. Yeah. So how long ago was this? Uh, I'm 34 on Friday. Um, and let's see, I was 15, 16. It's been about a good 18, 19 years, wow. if not more. So- Almost 20 from when I first went. Wow. And so when you got when did you, how old were you when you got home finally? I was 16, almost 17. Uh, and married. You you leave 14 and full of life and you come back married. I came back married, yes. How, I mean, I don't want to give away your book. So tell us if you, if you'd like, just with the about four minutes we have left, tell us what you'd like to share with our listeners about your experience and maybe for those that are, are struggling from something, hopefully not as terrible as what you had, maybe how you could share a little of that hope you were talking about. For me, it, it, it was, like we said, you know, putting this book out was something that I wanted to do, not just for myself, but for everybody else. In, in letting go of all this stuff, I realized that in the darkest part of our lives, and they say everything happens for a reason, when you're in that part of your life where you feel like there's no hope and you can't move forward and you can't let go and how are you ever going to work through things? And I get asked all the time, how do I trust people? How do I learn to trust? If you don't, then all these people that have tried to hurt you and try to bring you down and try to destroy you, they win. you got to let them win. You know, for me, okay, I've had a terrible past and I've been through so many things that most people will not fathom, but that doesn't, that doesn't map out my future. That just makes me a stronger person. It just makes me be able to identify with people and help people and be able to appreciate my life and the things that I do have and the little things that I take for granted like food and freedom and being able to speak out and, you know, even being a child of abuse, it makes me a better mother. It makes me know what I didn't want and I didn't want to go through. It makes me be able to be what I I know I wanted to feel as a child towards my children. You know, maybe I didn't get taught all the things I should have, but at least by knowing what I shouldn't have, I can be where I'm supposed to be, if that makes sense. And I'm just basically Mm -hmm. take, take everything you've been through in your life, no matter how tough it is. Don't let it define who you are. 
I love that. And Max and Lily, do they are they old enough to know, or will they someday get to know about your experiences? Uh, Max is fourteen. He's fifteen at the end of July, and uh, Max um, has actually read my book, and um, is my best friend in the whole world. So, yes, he does know, and he's a very smart young man. So, uh, Lily, not yet. You know, I think she's too young, and you know, maybe in a few years. But yeah, I think it made me a better mother. For, for it all, at least. Well, what a story. I I think you're very brave in not only surviving it, but actually having the courage to to share it, to live it all over again in, in detail, I'm sure. Um, your book I, has great reviews. It sounds like something that people ought to take with them to the beach or, you know, away on a vacation if they want to, you know, just get in, in involved in, in the story. Everybody and, at Reddit said they could not put it down, and I've had people tell me they've read it in two days. But it's just, it, it's gripping. They cannot let it go. So God willing. You're a good writer, and that's that's nice too because it's not, um, you know, it's you you have you're a strong writer, and it's uh, I I hear from the reviews, and I can't wait to read it when my copy gets here. But you are a writer that um, that describes things well, so you feel it, and I I think that's um, the best kind of writer. So thank you for being the, the a good writer. That, yeah, the person that um, did most of the writing is Michael Minkoff Jr. He um, is a phenomenal writer, like you just said, and you actually live the experience of this book, and we, that's why we wrote it in first person. So you could actually live through it and experience it. So, Well, thank you so much for, for being a guest um, on this show, and I wish you every bit of you know wonder and beauty in your life going forward with your two wonderful children, and um, I love that you're from Manchester, and I, I'll have to <laughs> Facebook you and let you know how I like the book. Absolutely. I'm truly blessed. And thank you guys so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Oh, it was definitely a pleasure for us. And this is Akila Hader Green, A-K-E-E-L-A Hader, H-A-Y-D-E-R Green, G-R-E-E-N. And uh, you, you can get the book at PatriotDepot.com and also IfILiveToTell.com and, of course, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. But if you want to hear more about her, we'll also put it on Facebook. Thank you so much, Akila, and thank you uh, for joining our show. And, again, it's If I Live to Tell. All right, this is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back with more after this. The Cassini Probe unveils a mystery in the sandy craters of Titan. This is Innovation Now bringing you stories of revolutionary ideas, emerging technologies, and the people behind the concepts that shape the future. When is a moon totally unmoon-like? When it's Titan, one of the moons of Saturn. Titan is huge, about twice as big as Earth's moon. It's the only moon in our solar system we know of that has an atmosphere. And what an atmosphere it is! A smoggy orange haze of hydrocarbons that rains liquid methane into tarry lakes of primitive gasoline. The surface geology isn't what you'd expect either. It seems there's been a lot of erosion filling in the terrain, so craters are scarce. But is it erosion filling in the craters, or something more exotic? Between radar surveys and information from the Cassini-Huygens probe, the Cassini team at NASA Goddard thinks that methane in the atmosphere rains down, infuses particles of dust into a sandy material that gathers into the craters. That stuff should evaporate away, revealing the craters, but the NASA team theorizes that Titan might somehow be renewing its methane supply. Since methane's a greenhouse gas, how it's produced and regulated is of keen interest for understanding our own climate and not turning it into one like titans. For Innovation Now, this is Buddy Rubino. 
Innovation Now is produced by the National Institute of Aerospace through collaboration with NASA and is distributed by WHRV. Visit us online at innovationnow.us. If you had the chance to travel the globe every week, where would you go? Cancun? Niagara Falls? What about Yellowstone? That's what I'm talking about. There's places that you go. For example, I like Boise, Idaho. Yes. But I love Hawaii. All right, so anything like that? Because there's some places that are just so much better than others. Let's be honest. Be sure to catch Eric and his crew weekdays at 9 p.m. Eastern, 7 Mountain, here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We've got the Matt Townsend team. We've got Bryce, Merritt, Aaron, and we're back. What a great segment we just had, though. Great author. It sounds like she has quite the story, and uh, I'm impressed. She's a strong person. Yeah, and If I Live to Tell Again, it was her book, and what a great escape story for our theme. So what are we doing now? Well, we're doing amateur hour advice. Usually at this point in the show, we'll get some very complicated or something that's pretty general, at least, a problem that someone's having with their relationship. And we'll have Matt chime in and give some Good advice, because that's kind of what he does for a business. And I decided, because I'm in charge and I am drunk with power, um, I decided, let's do that. But we don't have particularly professional advice, at least not the same way that Matt does. We don't have his sort of advice, but that's not going to stop us. So <laughs> may stop listening, but... <laughs> that's, but but we have we have a few brains here that can chime in. We have Kim with a lot more life and experienced than us, and she can tell us if we're totally wrong and if we should not give that advice. So I got I got a few situations here. So the first one, and this is one that I kind of like. Okay, this guy, he says, so I'm trying to date a coworker who's a very new hire. So here's the story. He says, so my workplace just made a, a bunch of new summer hires. I'm very interested in one of them. Um, at first, she said yes, but she seemed a little hesitant. Uh, then I got a text late last night and said she didn't want to start dating a coworker so soon because she was worried about what other people would think of her. Okay, I understand that concern. Um, she, insist, she insisted that she wasn't saying no, that she needed time to settle in first. But uh, don't worry, it gets worse. She told him maybe, which uh, I don't, I hate that. I, that's the worst thing. Hey, do you want to go do something? The girl says, maybe. It's like, not yes. Like, I, oh, right. I don't know what to do now. So his question is, should I try and put her mind at ease or should I just wait like she said and ask again later? Or should he still hang out with her? Should they be friends in the meantime? Or should he just give her space? Okay. I'm going to say as a person working that the only time, if, if you're going to have a workplace relationship, it has to be one that won't be weird after you have a date. So if you were to go on a date, you need to know that your coworker who you're going on a date with won't be weird afterward if it doesn't turn out because that just is a recipe for disaster. So my advice would be she's already acting weird about it and seeming to create a little bit of drama. So I would say maybe look elsewhere. You would say but maybe. But that's a little harsh. Would you say maybe <laughs> to a guy? You get another maybe there. <laughs> I've never heard that before. Maybe. maybe. I'm going to throw uh, something uh, in too, okay. if you don't mind. Um, I'm going to quote Bryce is right. Expect everything to be a trap. 
That's Amen. what I say. You know, you know, I'm actually, <laughs> I'm actually have my list of rules pulled up right now because uh, let me see if I can find it. Maybe it, is like it might be a trap. So maybe. Oh, yeah. definitely. That. Well, the maybe is the trap. It's what are you going? I don't know if that's really the trap, but I think it's like rule 15 on here. It's uh, yeah, never date a coworker. That's one of my rules. I've never found it to be. I've never seen it work out. And I've only ever experienced and seen it be a total disaster. Have you watched The Office, Pam and Jim? Does that count? Um, no. <sighs> I met Jim in Hollywood. Dang. Well, not Jim, but the guy who plays Jim. Chris, uh, John yeah. Krasinski? Yeah, John he's Krasinski. Tall. Yeah. He's tall and he's a nice dude. <laughs> See, I always think of that. Like, if they could do it, then maybe it's possible. But I, I agree that it's not a good idea. I mean, it is improv But I don't think, I don't yeah. think it's that improv it's true. So it's his Hollywood. answer is what? Merritt's answer? I'm 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 with Merritt on this one. Like, dude, it's already not you're already crashing and burning at this point. <laughs> so so just like keep burning. Uh, so so Aaron's like, keep going, go all the way. Come but on. keep listening to the show because eventually you'll have some advice you like. Right? Someday. Oh. All right. All right. Next up. We've got oh what hold on, that's another relationship one. Let's move away from that real fast. I need glass to shatter when he tosses the paper like Dave Letterman. <laughs> Or like a basketball, like it's a probably a sound effect for that on here. Um, so here's this guy. Uh, he says, "I feel betrayed by my family." There's a big long story that I'm going to try and and condense it down. Uh, his parents have a second house. He agreed with his parents. Okay, I'll live in this house, and we'll do sort of like a rent to own situation. That's you know, parents helping out. That's him being a responsible person because he he said his thing is he really wants to own a house good goal but what's kind of happened is with the economy dropping out and it's all fallen to pieces his siblings have also sort of fallen on hard times as well so they're starting to move into this other house and they've and his parents have kind of dropped the whole well you don't really you're not the only one living there so you're not really the one who renting it and so they've kind of dropped out of the whole renting to own they're, they've essentially pulled the rug out from under him um, and he wants to know uh, should I stick with this? Should I confront my parents? What should I do? Did he just hear the story about the lady being sent to Iraq? I know, right? Yeah, betrayed. See, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, the word does not mean the same thing uh, in oh. from situation to situation. All right, all right. They're going to make him pay rent? What's that? They want him to pay rent at the, at the house now, basically? Um, or? or pretty much what they're turning it into is, well, you're just going to pay rent and now you're not going to own the place. So he was paying rent thinking- For how long? Um, he said he's in a, a year and a half in mm-hmm. at this point, which I don't know how old he is, but you know that's a lot of money. I can assume uh, that's a lot of money that he thought he was investing that he is not. That has just kind of gone to you know whatever. Ouch! Is there um, a contract? It doesn't sound like it is. It sounds like it was a family agreement. So verbal. <laughs> if even that much. Does like, say how old he is? No. Oh. I'm sure he's disappointed. But I don't know if betrayed is. Oh, we're being dramatic with betrayed. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know. If he hasn't moved out, he probably should try that. Cause... Well, he's in house number. Well, I guess it seems like he has is lived on his own. This is not. No. Oh, parents do not own two houses. <laughs> this is Bryce. No. Because if they did, I would be in that house. I would not be paying rent either. <laughs> no, I probably would Free be. Free ride. Yeah. No, um, it seems like he's kind of gone out on his own and he's he's come back, like his parents have this, and he was just, oh, hey, well, uh, can I just rent it? To own. Rent it to own, yes. 
Uh, but then his siblings needed help. Which is fine, you know. But then he should be the landlord for them is what he, right. It's kind of what it seems like. It seems yeah. like he, actually it seems like he's been the landlord for them. And suddenly his parents are like, so when are you guys going to stop paying rent and go live on your own? He's like, oh, I thought I was doing that. Oh, yeah, that would be disappointing. I think that if he wants to rent to own, maybe he should go do that where he can actually have a contract. <laughs> From what I've heard is if you, when you ever involve the family, it's going to get either really sticky or it can go really well. So, I mean, and when it goes bad, it goes bad because it becomes a family issue. So sometimes getting out of doing things in the family with money you know, or, or loans can be helpful. That's my opinion. Communication would have been key. Yeah. Yeah, clear communication. It sounds I'm gonna I'm gonna jump to conclusions here and say it seems like he assumed a lot, um, and his parents assumed nothing. Um, we still feel sorry for you because that's hard. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, but yeah, I'm with Merritt on this. You know what? There's this thing you can do. You can actually make a contract, and then you can go live on your own. And then you don't have to deal with family. In fact, you could do it very far away from your family, so you don't have to deal with them any more than you already have to. Or you can sue your parents, you know, either one. <laughs> or you, you could be glad you're not in Iraq. I'm going to stand with that. Right. <laughs> All right. Next situation. Okay, this that one. That was the glass, Shepard. I was right. That's, that's my toss. <laughs> okay, this will probably be our last one. Guy says, I got a first date with a girl tomorrow, and... I don't think I'm interested at all. That's you. No, this is no. Okay. <laughs> this is not me. It's always Bryce. This is Bryce segment. The, the next one, the next situation I have is advice for my burnt out EMT boyfriend. That's not me. Okay, <laughs> that's not. Let's just get that out of the way. Um, okay. So this guy said he said I met this girl. We we exchanged information. Things were looking good, and then I kind of uh, got to know her, sort of. Um, in between time, and I feel like this date's kind of a waste of time. Should I go at all? Three times. Give her three chances. Three. That's right. Three chances. I'm. My thoughts, you know what? Date's not going to kill you. So Committed to it. Right? You know what? Just keep the date, date cheap and short. Make it as painless as possible if you're really not looking forward to it. But eh, go for it. Who knows? You might love her. I don't know. And by the way, Merritt's not going to go out with you now. <laughs> Wow. Um, yeah, I, I agree. Like I'm not three, her. three date rules, good. You know, um, maybe don't pay too much until you're really into her. You know, just like get to know her and make it. What is that bad to say? I don't know. I don't know. Well, the nice, the nice dinner comes on the third or fourth <laughs> date, right? You don't just take her out to like a nice steakhouse the first date. Okay, or, or, I'm gonna chime in here. Thank being you. The girl. <laughs> thank you. Take her on the date. Yeah. You. Yeah. Treat her well. If it's free, that's even better. And don't better. write us anymore. <laughs> yeah. Just kidding. <laughs> no, no. And I think give her a chance. If there was something at the beginning, there will likely be something later. That was a good sign. I you think know? you're right. I, you got, I, yeah. Gut instinct. I believe in it. So, And and the three rule is great because, you know, your mood changes with the day and maybe something. But why not uh, just give her a chance and three chances and maybe you'll end up marrying her. Yeah. See, there you go. That's possible. Or good miss out or go to Iraq. You can have it your way. <laughs> All right, you've been listening to the Matt Townsend Show, and that was Amateur Hour and uh, some fun advice for listeners. Thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll be back with more tomorrow. You listen to the news. Now, hear the rest of the story. It's kind of a high-power group to have here. You've got these uh, great academics. Notes from the Kennedy Center on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. 